This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Tensions have escalated in the Middle East after a number of developments in Baghdad over the past week culminating with the killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani outside the Baghdad airport. A statement from the Pentagon said the attack was ordered by U.S. President Donald Trump after an attack earlier on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. Soleimani was the architect of nearly every significant operation of Iranian intelligence and military forces over the past two decades. And his death is a staggering blow for Iran at a time of sweeping geopolitical conflict. Prior to his assassination, Libby Snymer spoke on Thursday with Dr. Elliot Tepper, senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa. They spoke about the escalation in tensions to that point. This particular incident is, if you want to zero down into it, kind of in a micro tit for tat situation. The U.S. did take action, armed action, in Kirkuk not long ago after these uh, same militias, these Iranian-backed militias, had attacked American contractors there and killed some. They've been shelling that for a long time. So Kirkuk is in the heart of... Oil country. ...was Kurdistan. And so standing back from it, and we're going to talk about a lot of details, we should remind ourselves that much of what goes on in the Middle East is both hard to fathom in terms of what we see on the surface, but at the bottom underneath it all, it probably has a lot to do with oil. President Trump sent a very threatening tweet out to Iran, basically saying if any lives are lost or there's any further problem with our embassies, you will pay a very big price in capital letters and saying this is not a warning, it's a threat. Yes, not a warning, it's a threat. How does that raise the temperature and how dangerous is that? I think since we are speaking now on the start of the year 2020 and leaving 2019 behind us, we have to stand back a bit and say the Middle East is an incredibly dangerous area, that there's been this long-term struggle between Iran and the U.S. in the area, that this is one more front, what we're seeing in Iraq, one more front in that struggle. That's how it's perceived by Iran. That's how it's perceived by the U.S. And the particular situation in Iraq is that the U.S. is there really on sufferance. That is, the troops that are there are the successor to the troops that first led to the Saddam Hussein overthrow. But after that, the status of forces agreement expired long ago. American troops are uh, there under a more tenuous agreement. The Iranians want to manipulate the situation so that their Shia-backed government will finally expel all American forces from the region, from Iraq, And then that begins, they hope, a domino effect in terms of Syria as well. So it's a very complicated situation, but we are in a dangerous situation because now the U.S. is saying that it's a threat. If you do anything to us, we're going to retaliate, and that's kind of an invitation. You know, there's a theory that what we just saw was a trap, that 
right now Iraq has domestic internal turmoil around the world as you know people are marching in the streets against autocratic governments against corruption that included Iraq there's been street demonstrations for months a lot of people killed and they're against their own government there is no government at the moment the prime minister has resigned and trying to get a new prime minister is difficult so this is now a way for Iran so to speak to trap the Americans into changing the dynamic inside Iraq back in their favor since a lot of the demonstrators were also saying we are against our own government in part because it's under the control of Iran that's how complicated this kind of situation is in Iran internally there have been huge demonstrations there violent demonstrations and a lot of people have died there attacking America and making everybody rally around the government helps the Iranian regime entrench itself at a time when they in turn are facing internal pressures the situation because America has pulled out of the Iranian nuclear deal with which you know they it was a mutual deal it wasn't a great deal in my opinion and many others but it was a deal between the two sides once one side pulls out the other side Iran is saying see you can't trust these people let's go now rally around the flag because they are encroaching on you know the Shiite interest in the Middle East why don't you help us push them out of the Middle East why don't you help us in Iraq so this works to the advantage as does a lot of the activities unfortunately, of the Western spread the Trump administration. Dr. Elliot Tepper, Senior Fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. It was after that conversation U.S. President Donald Trump ordered the assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in Baghdad. You're listening to the Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. At this dawn of a new decade, there is no question the world has changed over the last 10 years. What aspects of life have changed for you and what are the defining political moments in Canada over the last 10 years? Libby was joined by Daniel Bellon, director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada at McGill University. I think to me the 2015 election was really a turning point in the sense that you know, in 2011, the Liberals finished in third position with fewer than 35 seats and uh, less than 20% of the votes. And at the time, the NDP uh, became uh, the official opposition. And they had this orange wave in Quebec that, in total, more than 100 seats. And the following election, so 2015, at the beginning of the campaign, people saw it as a race between the Conservatives and the NDP. And the Liberals were really in third place still. And there was a major reversal during the campaign. And in the end, the Liberals ended up winning a majority government. And that was a surprise and a major turning point because the Liberals were back and they are still in power, even if it's with the minority government. So I think to me, it was probably the most important event of the year in Canada, event of the decade in Canadian politics. Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, but now uh, that seems to be, uh, you know, very much on shaky ground. The prime minister seems to me is, uh, you know, he's a bit tarnished. He was, you know, the big hero in 2015, not any longer. Absolutely. I think what happened is that the election in 2015 was related in part to the charisma, perceived charisma of the prime minister, and it's true that his public image has been tarnished over the last four years. And, you know, it started with the trip to India. Then, of course, SNC-Lavalin, the blackface issue during the campaign, this last year's campaign. And so it's true that the prime minister is not <laughs> this kind of new shiny object in 
not just in Canadian politics, but in world politics. You know, when the Liberals took power in late 2015, Trudeau was seen as a kind of model for a kind of new, hip, kind of center-left politics. And uh, I think this kind of dream or this image uh, has been shattered, that's for sure. Now, do you see a parallel? We see just how polarized politics are south of the border in the United States yes. and in other places. So do you see this as the perhaps particular Canadian expression of that? And do you see things getting more divided and polarized? If you look at the, you listen to the rhetoric of Jason Kenney, and I live in Alberta for seven years. I know Alberta quite well. And it's, there is a populist trend, and especially in Alberta. And again, it's not something new. It was there in the old days, the social credit. It came back under Ralph Klein. And it's certainly there with Jason Kenney. There is a sense that, you know, there is the Alberta people, the people in Alberta who are really mistreated by other provinces, by the federal government. And this is our way of populism. You know, in Europe and in the U.S., populism is more potent at the national level, right? But in Canada, because regionalism is so strong, populism generally takes place and is powerful at the provincial level. In a way, you have that with Legault in Quebec. Uh, some people are arguing that Legault's, you know, Bill 21 and some of the rhetoric and about lang- is actually, you know, populist in a certain sense. In Alberta, Jason Kenney, I think it's quite obvious that it's, there's a form of populism there. You appeal to the people, but also against a corrupt elite. In the case of Jason Kenney, the corrupt elite is really, uh, you know, the, Justin Trudeau and the liberals in Ottawa, right? Uh, so in our federal system, when you appeal to populist sentiments, you tend to do it more at the regional or provincial level. You talk about Western alienation or Quebec uh, separatism and so forth. And it's not the case in the U.S. In the U.S., populism is very strong at the, at the federal level, the national level. We see that with Donald Trump. Daniel Ballon, director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada at McGill University. Wednesday marked the beginning of an effort in the United States to try to curb young people from starting to smoke. The minimum age to buy cigarettes, e-cigarettes, and vaping cartridges jumped from 18 to 21. Now there's a call for Canada to implement the same policy. A statement from the Canadian Cancer Society urges our federal government to increase the age for purchasing cigarettes to 21. Right now, the minimum age is 18, but some of the provinces, like Ontario, have raised it to 19. Ferg Devins is the volunteer chair of Bladder Cancer Canada, a bladder cancer survivor and former smoker. Since smoking is the main cause of bladder cancer, I asked Ferg what he thinks about raising the minimum age to buy cigarettes to 21. We know that, in fact, our medical advisory board advises us that probably 50% of uh, patients who are diagnosed with bladder cancer, it was probably caused by smoking. So it is, it's one of our key messages that smoking does cause bladder cancer. Admittedly, I was a smoker in my youth. And so, you know, when I quit smoking, I thought, oh boy, my lungs will be clean, you know, and I'll be free and never have to face lung cancer. And lo and behold, you know, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. And I think back in those days when I was smoking, you could smoke anywhere. You could smoke in the office. You could smoke in your boss's office. You could smoke in public. You know, I was a heavy smoker in my youth. And so I got to believe that that was the cause of my bladder cancer. Did you take up smoking before you were 21? Yes, I did. When I was at college in Thunder Bay, I didn't in high school. 
but uh, I was in college in Thunder Bay, so I would have been 19 at the time. And, you know, we smoked. Uh, 21 have made a difference. Well, I think access does make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's harder to obtain cigarettes or, for that matter, alcohol, I, I think it does have an effect on how much access there is and, and then the ability to smoke. The Canadian Cancer Society is advocating to raise the minimum age for smoking in Canada to 21. Not to put you on the spot, but would Bladder Cancer Canada have an official position on this as well? Well, our official position is certainly, you know, not to smoke. We know that science has proven that bladder cancer can be caused by smoking. So it's just, it's very simple for us. We just advocate not to smoke. I thought it was interesting looking at the U.S. situation. I know in 2015, there was a report by the National Academy of Medicine revealing that this Tobacco 21 initiative could prevent up to 223,000 deaths among people born between 2000 and 2019. So, you know, certainly the science supports advocacy in that regard. But when you go back to the facts of the science, Jane, you know, more than 7,000 different chemicals are in tobacco and tobacco smoke. And more than 70 of them are known to cause cancer. And, you know, for bladder cancer, these chemicals cause damage in the most basic level of our bodies, Mm -hmm. cells and genes. And genetic damage caused by smoking leads to uncontrolled cell growth, which contributes to the formation of tumors. So, you know, tumors grow, they spread throughout the body. And with respect to bladder cancer, your bladder is exposed to very high concentrations of these chemicals because of the urine. The urine, of course, being passed through the kidneys. And so, you know, the facts should speak for themselves to just convince people not to smoke. Ferg Devins, Chair of Bladder Cancer Canada and a bladder cancer survivor. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. This is the first weekend after the start of a new year, as many of you try to stick to any New Year's resolutions you may have made. In addition to the usual diet and exercise plans, there is dry January, as well as financial resolutions. Do you buy into any of this? And what about strategies for keeping those resolutions? Joining Libby to discuss, Cared Urquhart, a life and professional coach and president at New Road Coaching, Inc. I think what happens is we make resolutions that are too broad. You know, it's sort of, uh, I'm going to be healthier or I want to be happier. It's a very broad statement. It's much better if you kind of condense it down. And if the resolution is, I'd like to be healthier, let's say, if you break it down into condensed goals. So example, I'd like to eat more vegetables three days a week, or I'd like to go to the gym two days a week, or something that you can actually chew on that will create the broader objective of being healthier, but you've actually broken it down into small little bits. The other statistic is that only 40% of people will stick to it for six months. I actually think that's pretty good. It's really good. Uh, You know, six months is a long time to be doing something totally different. Albeit, though, it takes about 21 to 27 days to change your habit. So once you get into that second or third month, it can actually get easier. So the first month or two is the hardest. It seems always diet and exercise are at the top of the list cared. Yeah, they're biggies, particularly in the winter months when we hunker down and we tend to eat more and get outside less. So I think, you know, diet is kind of a tricky word because it's associated with sort of negativity, like I'm going to give up something. So it's better, I think, to think about it in terms of lifestyle. And if you want to feel good about yourself. It's all about, you know, self-empowering, being, you know, self-love, if you will. 
then eating well is just a natural course of that. So if, maybe if you change the sort of the definition of the word, I'm going to love myself more in January, so therefore <laughs> I'm going to feed myself really healthy things, as opposed to I'm going to diet and not eat the things that you know I might want. Sometimes the way I would think about it is, well, if it's a diet, it's only for a short amount of time. If it's a lifestyle change, you know, I have to do this forever. Well, nothing's forever, but at least if you make some kind of lifestyle, and it can be tiny, right? I mean, maybe it is like you would talk about the apple. It could be something really small that is a lifestyle change for you that you can implement every morning. So it could be a small habit in the morning. Maybe first thing in the morning, you always get up and you don't eat breakfast. You have your cup of coffee, you don't eat well, and you're really hungry by 1030. Maybe it's a subtle different diet change in terms of the habit that you have. Now you get up and you have some protein in the morning and then you feel a little bit better for a little longer. Small things are good. Do you find people are making resolutions just to have a better uh, attitude? I don't know if that's the right word, but take things as they come. You know, the one of the things I've been reading, people, you know, making conclusions about the decade, that this is a time of high anxiety. It can be a high-level anxiety time of year, particularly with the holidays, etc., all coming around. And it's a very emotional time of year for many people. And I, I just, you know, I think that to put too much pressure on yourself isn't necessarily the way to go. You may want to think about why you're trying to create a resolution, right? A lot of people create resolutions without giving them context. And it's good to sort of understand why you might want to get healthier, try to be happier, try to be on more, more online or not more online or, you know, why are you needing those things? Because there's probably a bigger picture reason. And as soon as you can tap into what that reason is, it makes it much easier to create that change or resolution. That was Karen Urquhart, a life and professional coach and president at New Road Coaching, Inc. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Charlotte phoned from Toronto to explain that her first attempt at online shopping ended up with a different outcome than what she expected. I wanted to order something for the very first time online. I'd never done it before, so I followed the the rules, whatever, and I didn't know it was going through, and I got so confused, I called directly, and they checked it and said Visa didn't allow it go through because they saw on my record I had never ordered online before. What I did was I got through directly and said, could you do it with me talking to you person to person? And he said, sure, and... He did it, it went through, and it was fine. Joanne in Port McNichol is a regular online shopper and called to say for her it's the best way to buy gifts. I did all my Christmas shopping this year online. I just love it. You can comparison shop really easily. Uh, I find there's more sales online. I'm not driving around trying to find. I have to buy for about 25 people. So I didn't have any problems even having to exchange gifts this year. It's just been a very positive experience for me. Margaret in Toronto phoned to say she was disappointed in the Prime Minister during the election campaign. I'll tell you what really ticks me off. This black face with with Prime Minister Trudeau. Libby, there's so many people that isolate from us in a very discreet manner. And we know what the problem is. So why won't they get off overweight? 
we are not concerned about it because it comes in different fashion. In my belief, I don't think he's a racist guy. I don't think so. He seems like a very nice person. So the other people should. It is true we didn't pick it up because that would have been more fodder for whomever. And we decide to stand down and let it be. Joan in Burlington phoned to say she's not one to make New Year's resolutions. A New Year's resolution, I haven't made one for years. I don't think it has impacted my lifestyle anyway. Even during Lent, I, I gave up the idea of giving up something for Lent because, quite frankly, I didn't see the need for it anymore. Linda called from Oakville and said raising the minimum smoking age to 21 won't be enough to deter young people to smoke. Well, I don't think it's enough, but to be honest, I mean, that they're going to do it anyway. But I personally think that the harder you make it, the more likelihood, rather, that it could have a lot less focus out there. My husband died of bladder cancer six years ago. I ended up quitting 15 years ago because his doctor was going to come and have a little chat with me because I needed to hear it. So I think the more that we're out there and we're putting the message out there and making it harder, the more likely we're going to have less smokers out there. I think the reduction has been significant. The more we take it off the shelf and the bigger a deal we make it. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Mike in Muskoka, whose life has been affected in various ways because of smoking. I just want to say I'm the other side of the coin. Five kids, both mother and father and grandma and grandpa, all smoked. None of those five kids ever smoked, never even tried it. You know, the number of times driving, say, up from Richmond Hill, where we originally lived, up in here into Muskoka, you know, every weekend to see grandma and grandpa and the smoke in the car and just the smell of it and the stench. None of us tried it. We were disgusted by it. I can remember my grandmother, you know, rolling her own cigarettes Mm -hmm. and just the stink of it. But no, never tried it. All the five kids were athletes in high school and university, and not one of us tried it. And I think the age should be raised. Certainly a lot of kids that come up to this area in the summertime, well, all the time, a lot of them are going to the different uh, First Nations places where they can buy cigarettes even cheaper. And is there the same... You know, inspection of, of identification in that, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Mm-hmm. But, and finally, I just want to say 2004, my life changed when I was hit by a drunk driver. My independence was stripped from me. One minute I was in the car. The next thing I knew, I woke up in Sunnybrook uh, Trauma Center, airlifted down to Toronto. And I just want to say to anyone and everyone that's listening, Before you get into a car tonight, if you've had even a sniff of alcohol, think about what you're doing because, you know, my independence was stripped from me. I was five years, like I had just had a laundry list of of injuries, traumatic brain injury. Just think about what you're doing before you get into that car. Thanks for calling in, Mike. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. 
I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.